Huey Long was a politician and a scoundrel. In the roaring 1920s, Huey Long became the youngest governor of Louisiana, and he did so through manipulative means. One of Huey's more abrasive character qualities was that he didn't even pretend. He wasn't even sneaky about his methods. He boasted publicly that he bought off lawmakers like sacks of potatoes and shuffled them like a deck of cards. This arrogant approach to life and politics would eventually be his downfall because he got into a gunfight with one of his opponents and was mortally wounded. And it was on his deathbed that he did something that was surprising coming from him. He prayed. And his final prayer was, God, don't let me die. I have so much to do. This morning, we come to Jesus' final prayer in John 17. So I'd invite you to turn there, if you're using the Bible in the pew, it's on page 759, John 17, where we will find that Jesus was not like Huey Long. Jesus did not use and abuse people. He loved them, and he served them. All the way from the beginning of John's gospel and Jesus' very first miracle, he was serving people and loving people. At that wedding feast at Cana, he saved that new bride and groom from embarrassment by providing them with wine, even the best wine for their guests. And then in John 3, Jesus loved that self-righteous Pharisee, Nicodemus, by showing him the true way to enter into the kingdom of God by being born again. And then in John 4, Jesus even loved the enemies of Israel, showing care for that Samaritan woman and for the Roman centurion. And throughout John's gospel, Jesus loves the poor the lame, the blind, who are in desperate need. And he showed his great love for his friends in John 11 by raising his friend Lazarus from the dead and showing his great power and glory to his friends. In the last several chapters of of John's gospel here, we've seen Jesus show love to his followers by preparing them for his departure. Jesus knows that the end is near, and so he shares an intimate meal and conversation with his followers to comfort them and to strengthen them for what's about to happen. John describes these moments beautifully in John 13, 1, saying, When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. Now, just moments before his arrest, we see Jesus 
loving his followers still by praying for them. So let's listen to our Savior's final prayer in John 17. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes... I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. In these verses, we see that Jesus prays that through his death, that he would be glorified, that his people would be protected, and that his people would be unified. That's how we can understand what Jesus is praying here. He prays that through his death, he would be glorified, that we would be protected, and that we would be unified. So we'll look at each of these in turn. First, we see there in the first five verses that Jesus prays that through his death that he would be glorified. Jesus uses some form of the word glory five times in the first five verses with another three appearances later in the chapter. So look at verse 1 where he begins, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son. And again in verse 5, Jesus says, And now, O Father, Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This is clearly important to Jesus. But what does it mean for him to be glorified? Well, for Jesus to be glorified means that he would be seen as beautiful and that he would be honored for his greatness. That he would be seen and appreciated as beautiful and honored for his greatness. We understand something about appreciating beauty, don't we? When we see the beautiful changing of the leaves, our hearts are drawn out in appreciation for it. When we read a good book, our minds are delighted to enjoy the beauty that we see in an unfolding story. When we hear a sublime song, we repeat the melody over and over in our head. Jesus' glory could have come to us like that. Jesus could have taken on a visibly spectacular appearance. And we see only flashes of that in the Gospels. So, for instance, in Matthew 17, in Jesus' transfiguration, he appears in a gloriously beautiful way to his disciples. But interestingly, John, in his Gospel, even though John gives a lot of attention to Jesus' glory, he doesn't record the transfiguration of Jesus because that's not the main way that we see Jesus' glory. Surprisingly, shockingly, John teaches us that Jesus' glory comes through his own gruesome crucifixion. Did you notice how 
in this prayer, Jesus connects his glory with the cross. Look again at verse 1. Jesus says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son. It is precisely in this hour, the hour of his impending death, that the Son asks to be glorified. And we see this even more clearly earlier in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It is precisely in this hour that the Father and Son are glorified. It is precisely when Jesus is lifted up from the earth on the cross that his beauty is seen. But even if we can see this connection that Jesus is making between the cross and his glory, it's still a bit of a mystery for us. How does this connection work? There's nothing apparently beautiful or lovely about a bloody crucifixion. It was a shameful curse to the Jews and a criminal disgrace for the Romans, for someone to die on the cross. Those who saw him hanging there and dying either mourned him or mocked him. So how can Jesus be glorified through the cross? The answer is that God's glory is mainly a display of his character. God's glory, his beauty, his excellence, his perfection is mainly a display of his character. So when Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 34, God reveals his glory by declaring his character. It says in Exodus 34 that when God passed by, he declared the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Because God's glory is mainly a display of his character. So Jesus is glorified through the cross because the cross was the greatest display of his character. Through the cross, God showcased his justice to punish sin and to have mercy to pardon sinners. Because on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for the sins that we committed and the judgment that we deserved so that we could be forgiven. The Lord's Supper, which we will soon celebrate, reminds us of this glory as we see the cup poured out and the bread broken, reminding us of Jesus' shed blood and broken body for our sake. Dear friend, I hope that you can see the glory of God in the cross. If you can see that beauty, if you can see God's character on display there, then put all of your hope and trust in Jesus. Turn away from every wisp and shadow of pleasure in this world and follow him. This is the good news 
This is all of our comfort and hope and joy in this life and the next, that we can have a restored relationship with God through Jesus. And Jesus says here that that relationship with God is life itself. Did you notice how Jesus explains this in verse 3? He says, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Friend, eternal life is not merely immortal life. Eternal life is not merely escaping hell. Eternal life is having a loving relationship with God. One author has put it this way, that God is the gospel. The good news of Jesus isn't the stuff that you get from him. It's that you get him. You get God. That is eternal life. Jesus connects these ideas again in verse 24 when he prays there that we would be with him and that we would see his glory because dwelling with Jesus in the presence of his glory, that is life. Is that what thrills your heart? Ask yourself, would you enjoy heaven if Jesus wasn't there? Do you mainly yearn for the absence of pain and suffering, or do you mainly long to see Jesus and to be with him forever? Are you most excited about identifying with a group of people who happen to share your values? Or are you thrilled that you are restored with your creator and your savior? What thrills your heart? You know, one amazing upshot of this life is that it starts now. You don't have to wait for it. Those who trust in Christ have that relationship with God now. And it will never end. So let that be what motivates you in your spiritual disciplines. Let that be what motivates you to read your Bible. Because you want to hear from the one who loves you best. And the one who you love more than anything else in this world. Let that be what comforts you when others let you down. That you know the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies. Let God himself be your source of joy when you are tempted by the fleeting pleasures of this world. This is eternal life, to know God. And, praise God, through the cross, we have him. Or perhaps it would be more precise if we said that he has us. Because Jesus prays that through his death, we would be protected. That's the bulk of his prayer, beginning in verse 6 all the way through verse 19. Jesus prays that we would be protected. And friends, this is amazing. I hope you can see how amazing this is because... Remember what's going on. 
we might expect that since Jesus' hour has come, since in chapter 18, his betrayer and an army is coming to arrest him, that Jesus might pray for his own protection. But he doesn't do that. He's praying for us and for our protection. Jesus reminds us here in verse 12 that he has guarded his followers. Jesus says he has kept us. He has protected us. This is just what he promised to do in John 10. Jesus is the good shepherd who keeps and protects his sheep. But the drama of this moment is that Jesus is about to leave. He says that in verse 13. He's leaving. So he prays in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And again, he prays in verse 15, that in the midst of a world that is hostile to his people, that the Father would keep them from evil and from the evil one. Brothers and sisters, we face many uncertainties in this world. But I want you to know that your relationship with God is not one of them. A couple of years ago, I had a conversation with someone in a doctor's office about how they can know if they're saved. This person was raised in a pastor's home, but they thought that God basically wants us to try be the best that we can be, and that in the end, we just have to hope that that's going to be good enough for God. But he said, he said to me that you can never really know where you stand with God. That was so sad to hear, and it's not true. Brothers and sisters, of all the things that we experienced in this life, if you are trusting in Christ, then nothing could be so secure as your soul. The psalmists often talk about this. They say, though the earth be removed from under our feet, God's love will never end. God's love is more sure than the ground you stand on or the pew you sit in. Notice how personal and possessive the Father and Son are of you. Look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. All mine are thine, and thine are mine. The Father and the Son take a sense of investment and ownership in you, brothers and sisters. So let our hope in life and death be that we are not our own, but we belong to God. We belong to Him. And one of the ways that God protects us is by sanctifying us. We see this in verses 16 through 19. In verse 17 there, that well-known verse, Jesus prays that we would be sanctified. Now, in the New Testament, sanctification sometimes refers to that process of spiritual growth. But the, the basic idea of that word sanctify means to be set apart or devoted to God. Again, it has that sense of belonging, that sense of ownership and devotion. 
So that's why Jesus can say in verse 19 that he sanctifies himself. So it's not that Jesus needed to grow in holiness or grow in godliness, but he was set apart to God and devoted to God. Sanctification is one of the ways that God protects us in an evil world. The world, in verse 14, hates Jesus' followers. And it is an evil place. Therefore, Jesus prays that we would be sanctified, set apart from this evil world, and devoted to God. And then, of course, according to verse 17, the means of this sanctification is God's word, which is truth. And I think here that God's word is, of course, a reference to God's revelation, but especially in the context of John's gospel, we must understand that the center, the core of God's revelation is that message about Jesus. In John 1, the author identifies Jesus as the word. And in John 14, Jesus says that he himself is the truth. So God's people are set off, we're devoted to God through our relationship with Jesus. The word or the truth, that message about Jesus, are like a jersey for God's team. It's how we're identified. So when you watch a sporting event, you know who to cheer for because of the jerseys that the teams are wearing. In a similar way, God's people are identified by our relationship with the word, with the truth, by that message about Jesus. This is what distinguishes us and separates us from the world that hates Jesus. We should also note that Jesus asks that we would be set apart for a purpose, for a mission. So to, to push our team sports metaphor just a bit more, we would liken this to joining a team. When you join a team, the jersey not only identifies you, but puts you on a mission. The team has a goal. The owner has commissioned us to win a prize. So what is our mission as the church? Look again at verse 18. Jesus says, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Harvest Bible Church, we are sent we don't just happen to be here. And as you can see in verse 15, Jesus doesn't intend to take us out of the world. He doesn't intend us to withdraw from the world. We are sent by Jesus to carry on Jesus' mission in this world to make disciples of all peoples. So Harvest Bible Church, let us be faithful to that mission that we have received from our Lord. This is why we sent and continue to support our gospel partners, like the Crosses and the Farmers who have recently been with us. It's why we pray for Stacey Mari in India. It's why we send a team to encourage the Thompsons in Chile. And it's why we should faithfully evangelize our neighbors and our family and friends here in Lancaster County. Jesus didn't save you by taking you out of this world, but he deliberately placed you where you are so that you could make disciples. So we should think deliberately and intentionally about this. 
we are approaching a time of year when we have wonderful opportunities to tell people about Jesus. If you enjoy campfires in the fall, invite your neighbors to join you. And as you enjoy the crunching leaves and making s'mores, talk to them about Jesus who made those wonderful things. Can you make space at your Thanksgiving table for unbelievers? We're just a month away. Start planning now. Go around the table and give thanks. You know, gratitude doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you're not being thankful to a person. So pray and thank God in Jesus' name for every good gift that we enjoy. People love Christmas parties. So invite unbelievers to a get-together where you can read the Christmas story and so that they can hear that that baby that was born was given the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Beloved, we have been sent by Jesus for this purpose. So let's continue our Lord's mission. So Jesus has prayed for his glory. He's prayed for our protection. And finally, Jesus prays that through his death, we would be united. Jesus says something remarkable in verse 20. He says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. He's praying for all who will believe. Friends, he's praying for us. So we should pay a special attention to what he's praying for us about. He repeats his request in different ways, each of them beautiful and amazing. Look at verse 21. He prays that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. And then in verses 22 and 23, he says, In the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. What does this kind of unity even mean? Jesus isn't saying... I ask that they would not quarrel or play favorites, that they would just get along. Jesus is not praying that we would merely get along. Jesus speaks about unity in our relationship in connection to the Godhead, in ways that push the boundaries of how we even think about our relationships. So for the sake of time, I think I'm just going to point out two important things about our unity in Jesus' prayer here. First, the unity that Jesus prays for means that we share a common love and mission with one another. We share a common love and mission. So in this prayer, when Jesus is talking about his own relationship with the Father, he highlights the love that the Father and the Son have for one another in verses 23 and 24. And then all the way back up in verses 2 through 4, he speaks about the shared mission between the Father and the Son. They're both working for the same reasons and to the same ends. So then we have a shared love and mission together. And indeed, Jesus prays that our unity and our love would aid our mission. He prays in verse 21 that we would be united 
so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The way that we love one another is an evangelistic tool, Jesus says. The way we love one another is a witness to the world that Jesus came, that he's real, that he makes a difference. After Bill Gass passed away, his sons said on more than one occasion that they had never seen a church love people the way that we love Bill and Betty Gass. Friends, that's the impact that our love and our union can have. It's a witness and a testimony. So may we be increasingly known for our love with one another. And may that testify to people, not of our own greatness, but of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, the, uni the unity that Jesus prays for is founded in God's great love for us. The union we have is founded in God's great love for us. Jesus says something remarkable at the end of verse 23, and I want you to stare at it for a moment. He prays for our unity that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Did you see that? This divine unity that we're wrapped up in means that God loves us like he loves his own son. He says it again in verse 26. I've declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. This sounds too good to be true, right? So much of the worry and fear and anguish and loneliness that we feel flees when we step into the light of this reality. If you are in Christ, the Father loves you as he loves his Son. And you become sons and daughters of the Most High. This is why adoption and foster care is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. And I'm so grateful in our own congregation for how families like the Carbaws and the Stewarts show us what this love looks like. Through adoption, a child receives the full love and blessing and benefit of a mother and father who were not their own by birth. And that's how the gospel works. By nature, we don't have a claim on God's love. By nature, we are unlovely, rebelling, hating God, and worshiping anything but the one true God. But God is so kind to adopt us into his family, and he holds nothing back. He who gave us his own son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? He sets his full love on us, blessing us with all the affection he sets on his own son. If you're here this morning and you have not experienced the adopting love of God through Jesus, this can be yours today. You have only to turn from every lesser love and loyalty and believe that Jesus alone can reconcile you to God. And when you trust in him, you are welcomed into his family. Not with a snide look or hesitation, but with the full embrace of the Father. 
Beloved, what difference does it make to you that on the night Jesus died, he prayed for your unity? He prayed that we would be one. How important is the unity of the church to you? How easy would it be for you to walk away from a difficult relationship or to walk away from the church? Brothers and sisters, if God's love is the foundation of our unity, then we stick together even when things are hard. When we hurt one another and need reconciliation, when our preferences clash, when we endure with one another over years of life and ministry together. We are united not because we are such great and lovely people, but because God's love is so great. So let me encourage you to identify that tender area of discomfort for you in this church. Perhaps it's a strained relationship or a difficult area of service or an unseized opportunity and take the next step to pursue one another in love. And as you do that, there will be moments that give you reasons to draw back. But let me encourage you to give yourselves up in one another in love. By living out the unity that you have with one another and by sharing our lives together, we will experience God's love and his grace in new ways. And we will see God's glory in it. And others will see and know that Jesus came and that he makes a difference. Most of us in this room knew and loved Ray Acker. And he loved us. One of the ways that he showed his love was by his determined attendance despite great physical difficulty. He wanted to be with us, even if it was hard for him to be here. Did you know that you could love people simply by attending and being here? He loved to be with us and to worship with us and to serve. He helped found and start our church. And God was kind to allow me to be with Ray in some of his last hours on earth. Ray was in and out of consciousness and awareness, and so I was especially surprised and moved when on multiple occasions he woke up and realized that I was in the room, and he prayed with me and for me and for you. When John came in one time to switch places with me, Ray took both of our hands and he prayed with us and for us and for you. What a different prayer than that scoundrel Huey Long. Ray didn't complain to God that he had things to do and that he didn't want to die. Ray knew that he was about to depart he was thinking of us. More than once, he wanted me to tell you how he missed you. And he prayed for us. What a beautiful reflection of the even more beautiful 
love of Jesus, who loved us to the end, and who loves us still, and who ever lives to intercede for us. Let us remember his great love for us now by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Those brothers who are going to help